Well, it's good to be back. Um, you can probably tell I picked up a bit of an accent uh, after being overseas all those weeks and hours. Um, it's actually funny, while I'm there, they are convinced I am one of you. I'm a South African when I'm in Canada, and when I'm here, I'm, I'm nothing. <laughs> I'm a foreigner. So I can't win either way. Um, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. After all those years of living here and ministering here, I'm, I've been adopted. But uh, thank you for your prayers while we are away. And uh, as I dropped off my nine-year-old girl in Mexico, uh, to remind myself that she's 19, she's a young lady, and she, the Lord is sovereign, and she can probably throw most men to the ground, so that also brings some small comfort. Um, but yeah, so she's doing well, and uh, she will actually be returning at the end of this month. So thank you for praying for her safety, uh, that the Lord will continue to use her in, in the ministry, but also in vocation. Uh, she finishes her EMT studies there. And yeah, just praying us for us while we were there in Canada. We had our two-week house arrest, which just again shows us how much our government cares for us because there's only two other countries in the world that love their people more than Canada. China and North Korea. Those are the only other two countries that have even more strict lockdown and house arrest uh, medical protocols in Canada. So yeah, we are well loved there, uh, but we got through that. And then in the, in the, in the remaining weeks, I guess six, seven weeks, we drove about 9,000 kilometers, uh, which is almost your average annual road trip um, kilometer uh, driving time in, in the, I say below average, but it was a lot. I lived in the car. But we're back. Uh, we had a great opportunity to go to a, a missions conference at our home church. We, I preached, uh, well, one time at another church, uh, but just a lot of interaction with our family and, and uh, catching up with them as well. So while we were there, um, we did um, get some time in ministry, and it was good to be home, to see and reconnect with our, our, our church, other believers, um, just to reconnect what's happening there. Um, and for years, I've kind of been wondering where the North American church is going when it comes to missions. And I've noted that the focus on missions is uh, becoming more about your personal desire to serve the Lord rather than a centered focus on the gospel or the Great Commission. And that one thing that's worried me, and I would say even grieved me a bit while reading about what's happening and even seeing firsthand what's happening is how low the bar has become or is, is becoming when it comes to missions. I'm not referring to the people, the quality of the people, but to the calling. What, is, what does it mean to be a minister of the gospel? Um, so I would say almost anything that an eager, enthusiastic, well-spoken or determined person or believer wants to do for Jesus, and I'm using air quotes here, anything that they want to do for Christ can be called or labeled ministry. You can add any activity that you're good at or thing that you have a desire to do to that suffix for Christ, for Jesus, and off you go. You get people excited, 
You can set up maybe a media page to, to sell what you're doing. You can start speaking at churches to raise interest and funds. And that's it. Soon you'll be riding a unicycle for Jesus or walking dogs for Christ. Uh, it doesn't matter anymore. As long as you're excited about doing it and people supporting you, that's all the affirmation you need. Um, I think we've all heard of stories in the past where missionaries have come maybe to South Africa or other places and they haven't quite found their niche, so they end up doing menial tasks like hanging up curtains in the church. Uh, even though they're supported by dozens of churches in North America and they're uh, living very well where they are, they end up doing things that anyone else could do. Uh, they haven't yet maybe found their place on the ground. That does happen. Um, and we should correct that and we should work on that. But there are missionaries who find themselves there because they don't know what else to do in their own home churches. Um, but here, specifically, I'm talking about people who claim to be doing missions because they're doing something, anything for Christ. It's a redefining of the gospel and, and of course, the Great Commission. Um, and unfortunately, this is how the young people are being raised in their churches to look at their future with Christ. Uh, they're drawn to adventure more than any, I mean, they're surrounded by media, YouTube and Facebook and all, and all the other, I don't know how many social media sites there are. They're in front of that all day and they just, everything's exciting. So they want to try something exciting. They want to do something different. They want to be outside of their culture, the, the, the norm that they are, the, the mundane, let's say, the day-to-day. -day. So overseas adventure, and again, adventure is equated with missions now, that does seem to offer them something. So there's very little thought to the calling. What does it mean to be called by God? There's very little thought even from the point of the leadership to, to actually um, vet them and see their history of faithfulness even where they are in serving uh, their people or proclaiming the gospel. In some churches, youth going on a missions trip overseas to Asia, Africa, Mexico even, is seen as a rite of passage because they've attended to the church for X number of years. All youth are considered the de facto missionary candidates just simply because they grew up in the church. And I think that lowers the bar. That is a dangerous precedent. Anyone can go just because you put your hand up. So we'll deal a bit with that this morning. The, the dangers are there. What does is, what is our calling really look like? What does what Paul said as the precedent for the priority for ministering in the gospel? And, and that leads to another question that I'm asked sometimes when I am back home. When I'm sharing maybe about the enormity of need, and sometimes I'll speak of the practical, the poverty issues here, or the spiritual, they'll ask, how can you meet all that need? Isn't it too great to consider meeting it all? And the short answer is yes, of course it's too great to meet it all. Um, and one missionary can't do that. And, and I have to admit, when I was younger, by the way, when I was younger, I would never have sent myself to Africa. Just, I'm being completely transparent and honest here. I wouldn't have seen myself, looking back, as a candidate. I would have said, no, grow a bit more. It wasn't a never, but not now. <laughs> so when I did land here many, many, many years ago, I did have this burden to meet all those needs. It was, it was a frustrating burden to have because you realized you couldn't do it, but yet it was everywhere. 
see you need, meet you need was sort of the mantra of that time. Um, and that's not a bad thing to feel, the gr to be grieved by people's poverty, but you couldn't bear that enormity. You couldn't, you couldn't respond to that in any kind of calling. And sadly, there are missionaries that don't understand why they're there or what they should be doing, especially when they're surrounded by that kind of need. And some people have these ideas like this. I'm going into all the world to make the world a better place to live. You, you hear that a lot, especially when you're coming from the, the West. You, the affluence, the comfort. If everyone shares in that affluence and comfort, they will be like us. They will be um, better off. And if they're better off, they're closer to God. And we kind of looked at the really tortured theology this morning earlier with Shantan's teaching there, how that can be equated. That if you're, you're blessed, if you have affluence, and if you have affluence, you're blessed, therefore God is, you're closer to God. Or they'll say, I'm going into the world to clean up society, or change the world, or educate. You know, there's a number of things that people do, they're practical things that they equate with missions of the gospel. And all these sounds very nice, they're very good, um, but we must not forget why Christ has sent us into the world. He's told us to go into the world and what we are to do, right? We are called to proclaim the gospel. And that means to be faithful to the message of the gospel, right? That means my expectation is not to rely on my own wisdom or innovation to meet needs or to try to change people's circumstances. That might happen, but that isn't the goal but to focus on their spiritual need that only God and God alone can address. And that is a one heart at a time. I can't be expected to save everyone, nor is that my calling, but by God's work in that individual heart, one heart at a time can be changed, and there is always a knock-on effect, because that person who is changed is not stationary. They also responding to God's call in converting those who are lost in, in sharing the hope that is in them. So we all know that salvation of our world is bigger than one man can accomplish. We can't do it all. But that does not mean we do nothing. So our question then becomes, what should I do? What does God require of me to be part of proclaiming the gospel in my community, my neighborhood, locally or abroad? And... Since we're, we're in still in, in evangelism month, I thought it would be helpful to then just remind us and to prioritize what it means to uh, be active in that command to reach the lost. So this morning, although you may not expect from this text, <laughs> our main text is from Romans 1, verses 14 to 19. Although we will be drawing on other um, New and Old Testament passages. But here, this passage, if you want to turn there, this is where Paul answers the question, what is our part in reaching the lost? Here's what he says. Verse 14, chapter 1. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is in the righteousness of God. Sorry, it is it, it. So let me read that again. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous 
shall live by faith. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Let's pray. Our Father and God, as we open your word this morning, as we uh, delve a little bit into the, the writing of Paul here, addressing the church in Rome, the Greek, the barbarian, the converted, the unconverted, the church that is, uh, Lord, finding their feet. And Lord, his calling was clear. Help us, Lord, to understand ours. There, this may not be a prescriptive uh, passage as much as descriptive, but Lord, help us to understand the, the command that we are to make disciples. Lord, help us to understand our role as believers, that we are not to um, be innovative and to rely on our own understanding and our own wisdom, but to be fools for the sake of Christ. Lord, help us to be devoted, help us to have a burden for the lost, and in, especially in this month of our evangelism and the other months that we'll be doing that as well. Uh, help us make that a priority, and help us, Lord, to be convicted even more by your word, that we might live for you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So here Paul helps us understand what our part is in this scheme, this, this great scheme of redeeming a lost world to himself, and to help us to focus to this end. So in verse 14, Paul here is making his calling very clear, right? What is he? He's under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Note the word obligation. Paul here isn't speaking about a feeling, he feels obliged, or a desire that comes maybe from uh, enthusiasm that he's mustered up, humanly speaking. And he isn't speaking of simply a clear focus that he has, that that makes him obligated. Paul here is talking about a commitment to the people that need to hear the gospel. And he is compelled and, and or obligated to bring them that good news. Now some commentaries say that Paul feels an obligation to the people, especially of this church in Rome, because he owes them something in return. They gave it to him, therefore he, needs, he, should, he feels he should give back. Um, like he owes them a visit or he owes them some other uh, ministry. But Paul here isn't saying that the Romans had granted any favor on him which made him beholden to, to them. What he is stating here is that he was under obligation to preach the gospel to everyone who would hear. And he's very clear on who those are. It's everyone. The Greek, the barbarian, the rich, the poor, the, uh, the, sorry, the, the wise, the foolish. And the obligation comes from the favor that God has showed him in his salvation. Because of God's calling on Paul's life and the recognition of what debt has been paid for his sin, he feels a moral injunction or a calling to dedicate himself to the proclamation of the gospel to all who will hear. And in this case, the Roman church. The word obligation, to understand what that means in a, in a more theological way, is debtor. And the debt implications had me study a bit more carefully about the meaning of the application. So who is the object of Paul's debt? Is it the Roman people? The word debtor in the New Testament has three kind of senses. 
So let's just go through a, a couple of them and, and I'll settle on the one that I think it is and I'm open to be corrected because it won't necessarily change the application but does help us appreciate his, uh, the placement of his, of his debt. The first is a literal sense of owing money or physical possessions uh, to someone. We see that in Matthew 18, 24. That they've paid something you owe and now you have an obligation to return that back. Then there is a sense of a moral debt or a sin payment. Uh, we need forgiveness of our spiritual debts, which Christ has done, right? And this is an obligation all believers share as recipients of the saving work of Christ. We have a duty. We have a, a joyful obligation to also make Christ's salvation known to a world that's perishing. But there's a third sense I think here is, it applies better, and I even talked to my wife about it, and she agreed, so we're both wrong. If it's <laughs> Paul is bound here by a commission or a duty to people because of his spiritual burden of his calling. Paul bears this sense of debt toward the Romans as they represent all people, you know, Greeks, barbarians, all. Yet he can do nothing to repay or fulfill the debt that he bears for his salvation. So it is a continual debt, an ongoing debt, where he can't unburden himself from that obligation that Christ has given him towards the lost. We see the sense of the word used later in Romans 8, verse 12, and then I'll, I'll show you again in Galatians 5, 3, but let's, if you, you're in Romans already, just turn to 8, 12. The context uh, of being set free from the bondage of sin here, Paul is saying this, that the believer is, quote, under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting uh, to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Sorry, I just had a lock up there on my screen. So, what is he saying here? The obligation here is to do what the Lord requires of you. To put off the life of the flesh. To be active in doing that. Continuously doing that. By the life of the Spirit. There's an imperative to no longer be under the obligation of the flesh and its desires. But rather to be obligated under the debt of, I should say, the Spirit which by we, we walk. We see that in Galatians 5.3 again. Paul uses the word the same way, in walking by the Spirit. I'll read from verse 1 in Galatians 5. Um, and then read down to 3. It was for freedom that Christ sets us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision... Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. The obligation here again is duty. The duty in this context is duty to the law, right? Because if you're going to follow that one part, you've got to follow it all. If you're committed to the part of the law for your justification, you're bound by the whole law. They must keep all of it if they're putting their faith in those requirements rather than Christ. So now you're abandoned to that. You are, um, it, what does he say here? You're a slave to that. And Paul here is explaining that yoke of slavery to the law because you cannot be free unless you put your faith in Christ. 
So, back to Romans 1 verse 14. Paul's obligation is obviously then to the Lord. As all of us are spiritually, our spiritual obligation in debt is to Him. And from this debt, Paul is obligated to those who don't know Christ. His duty is to preach the gospel to people of all nations, all cultures. And that makes him very eager then to what? To visit them. He's eager then to minister to them. Not because of a a tangible, transactional debt between the people and him, but because of his debt to Christ. That's his motivation. That's his drive to his people. That's the debt of the heart, not a transactional physical one, although there is a transactional debt in our salvation, he is not speaking of, he is speaking not of the uh, monetary or, or uh, relational debt to people. There's no obligation to them specifically. So the salvation that Paul received was so profound that it has completely changed his thinking, his focus, his goals, his purpose, his desires, and ultimately his duties, right? He no longer feels obligated to himself even but to the Lord, so that others may know him as well. Let's look at a couple more passages to better understand this obligation. Um, And you may not want to turn there, because I'm going to be going through a few... Well, yeah, stay in Romans, because we'll be coming right back to it. But in in 1 Corinthians 6.19, and I'll include the last part of verse 19, if you're familiar with this. It, and, and Paul is saying this to the Corinthians, You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And in Romans 6.22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, Paul knew the great cost that had been paid for his sin. And Paul knew the seriousness of his sin and the blood cost that was spilled for it. And he he understood that he is now free from that penalty. And what a relief. What a a sense of obligation and indebtedness he feels for that to the Lord. But now he's transferred his slavery, not to the law, but to who? To Christ. He's now a bondservant to the righteousness that he now enjoys in Christ. And this is actually how Paul introduces himself in Galatians 1.10 and in Titus 1 as well. He wore that title gladly. And, and that gives us, when he, when he talks about being a bondservant or a slave, it gives us an Old Testament picture of a slave who binds himself or used to historically bind himself to his master for life. And, and that is what happens at salvation. We die to ourselves. We take up the cross of Christ. We follow Him because we are His. We have life because of Him. And so we joyfully are obligated to Him. And we serve. We follow. And Jesus requires that if you are to save your life, what do you do? You reject it. You, you lose it. This means that you are no longer your own. Because you were bought with a price. This means you then transfer that to Christ. You belong to Him. And because you're His, this means that He is the Lord of your salvation. And if He's Lord of your salvation, what is He also? Obviously the Lord of your life. And that is why at salvation we are given a new heart and a new mind. We are, our desires are transferred from the world to Him. 
to unrighteousness to righteousness. We no longer just do what we want. And in fact, we should be grieved by what we used to do. Our worldly pursuits, our worldly interests. Because we want to put those behind us. Instead, we want what Christ wants. We want Him. We no longer follow our passions, but the passions of Christ. And we hate what He hates. So we share in the obligation that Paul is expressing here. We are to share the gospel to the world, and that will mean the fool, that will mean the barbarian, that will mean the wise, that will mean the Greek. There's no partiality, and there's no fear. Now, there's an important point to be made, and we have made it many times, and I think it's worth repeating, though. All believers are obligated in this way. There's no exclusionary clause that say, well, because of your education or, or your standing in the church or your age, you, therefore, are the one who do it, or your title in the church. You are to show compassion to the lost. There are those who share and there are those that don't need to share. Christ doesn't urge believers to spread the gospel. And he doesn't categorize those who shouldn't, those who shouldn't. He's addressing the church. He commands them. We know from Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And he goes on, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this quickly, I think we, most of us will agree, but there's some new faces, visitors, um, people that may not have thought of this. This passage is often misapplied with the emphasis, and I heard this many times when I was home. It grieved me again. The emphasis is not go. And in my introduction, I was sort of hinting that that has become the mantra. Just go, man. Do something. Go, go. It says right there in Matthew 28, just go and then do what you want. No, the going is presumed. How can you share the good news of the gospel by not going? You have to be going. That's, it's while you go, this is what you do. It describes in particular that you should be teaching, instructing, to be making disciples. Because he's the author of our salvation. And we are commissioned to disciple them in that salvation. But we have a role in that as well. We don't save. God does the saving. But we are to be witnesses. Christ describes what it will be like for believers when he's addressing the... Look, in Acts 1, describing what is to come. In Acts 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What are we witnesses of? That Christ lived, that he was a good teacher, uh, that he was a devoted leader? No. We receive the Holy Spirit to proclaim that we are saved by the life, by the death, and the resurrection, resurrection of Christ. And that is all believers share in that. Like Paul we are obligated and compelled to share that. So if you're saved and you truly understand what it means to have Christ pay your sin debt, do you not also want to see that debt paid for others? If your salvation is precious and you say that this is the most important thing to me, is that not also something that should be important to others? 
Spurgeon, he kind of put the desire and the emphasis we should have as believers in this way. He says, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. If you don't feel some obligation and compelled to share to the lost, that may be a warning sign that you may not have received the mercy that you're proclaiming. This desire should be there. You should be praying for the lost, speaking to the lost, hoping for the salvation of those who are perishing. But apart from this heartfelt need we, we want to share with others, we should feel that. But it's also commanded to do it. So internally there should be a warning sign. This is important. This is urgent. This is something I need to do. I want to do joyfully. It will be, I will be made a fool. I may not see any fruit, but I feel compelled. But it's also commanded. Our calling is clear. You see it in Paul's life here, but you also see it in Peter's. And we're going to look a bit about Peter here. Uh, in Matthew four eighteen to 20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. They didn't hesitate as to the priority and the obligation. They immediately saw themselves as bondservants to him. Now for the modern and very busy and active church today, we, we often get distracted and sidetracked by the supplemental aspects of the church. The fellowship programs, the Sunday worship, the women's meetings, men's meetings, all, all of the peripheral things. And, and they're important things. They're things we should be part of. All of those are there to help us grow and to foster relationships, right? And that's what a family should be doing. But they're not substitutes for the priority of making Christ known. We can be very busy with running the church so we forget what we are called to do from it. Our only priority is, and, and our only calling, is to bring the message of salvation to those who are perishing. So we take the light into to the darkness, whether it's to the Greek or to the barbarian, to the wise or to the foolish. That is our obligation. And after Paul has explained here his debt obligation, he then goes on to his motivation that drives that. Turn back if you're still in Romans, but stay, you can stay there for a bit. Romans 1.15, the next verse. He says this, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now the word eagerness expresses a readiness, um, a willingness, a zeal to, to get on with it. The exegetical dictionary describes it as even a great concern that he, that he wears, a burden that he wears, that he wants to become busy with that task, to resolve it. Some translations include this phrase. Paul says, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel. And so Paul's expressing what he feels compelled to do because of that burden, that debt burden that he, that he wears. It's a spiritual response he's expressing because of being saved by God's grace. He's received that mercy, he's received that grace, and he knows he needs to now respond to that and proclaim to others what he has received. But he knew he couldn't save the world. It's not his task. Paul knew that he had a role within the greater work of the Lord. 
And his part was to proclaim the gospel to those who God specifically had called him to preach to. And as a believer, this is also what God asks us to do. Not to be Paul, not to be an apostle, but to be active in proclaiming the gospel. When I was in Canada last month, I was kind of struck by this increasing professionalization of the church. This expectation of assigned responsibilities within the church where everything is compartmentalized and everyone has a very specific job that leaves very little room for looking outward because you're busy looking inwardly. So there are pastors of everything now. Um, There are pastors of organizing a party. There are pastors of making sure the lights are turned off. There are pastors in every aspect. And because of that, it's always assumed that that job will get done because someone else is doing it. Someone's been assigned to do that. They're even paid to do it. And I start to see that same approach when it comes to reaching the lost. The church expects someone else, because I'm not paid, I'm not a a staff member of the church, because my job as the non-staff member is just to participate, just to meet together. And it's very common today to have a church that's satisfied with just that, content to gather rather than to scatter. Uh, People are losing their passion for the loss and that obligation that comes with it because someone else will do it. The other observation in the church today is that many feel the job of the church is to simply attract, just to draw people in. And and not this church, and, and this is a generic description of the way things have moved and are moving, they, they shape and mold their services to appeal to felt needs and desires, the desires of the world rather than the need of the saints. But that's not our role as church. Who does the drawing? God does the drawing. God brings the increase, as we looked at our reading this morning in Colossians. And Christ makes that very clear in John 6.44. No one can come to the Father to me, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent him draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. So the drawing part is from the Lord, not man. We shouldn't be worrying about getting people into church, but getting the message out of the church. So out into the world, we have a message that saves. We don't expect them to come in and receive it here. We're not trying to attract them. And so that brings more confusion about the saving. The thinking that as long as we get people into the church, even to join or maybe become members, that we have now saved them. They're saved because they're part of our church. But the saving isn't our role either. Hebrews 7.24 Therefore, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. The He in, in Hebrews here, the writer of Hebrews, the he is, he's referring to as Christ. And he draws, and he alone is able to save because God brings them to him. So our pe- part isn't to draw people to the Lord. Our part isn't to save them. Nor is our part to bring people assurance. Now this is the last thing that really bothers me. Uh, we need to be very careful not to assure people of their salvation. 
That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So the knowledge of salvation is confirmed by the working of the Holy Spirit in the believer. It testifies to himself, to the life of the saint. We will know we are saved or we are self-deceived if we don't have that spirit testifying to our own salvation. And some feel it's a, a good role or a godly role to affirm people's salvation. They feel they are doing a good deed by affirming what people already think about their salvation. And people want affirmation. It's very easy to give. It's, it's free. It's cheap. But it's the wrong thing to do, especially when we're talking about eternity. Confirming the salvation is the work alone of the triune Godhead and the personal testimony of the Holy Spirit to the one who is saved. So don't do it. It's not your role. But let's get back to what our role is specifically to proclaim the gospel. And this is, we're back in Romans, Romans 10, 14. We know that we are to do this because the gospel is to be heard and to be understood. Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? 1 Corinthians 2, 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superior speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For, Paul saying here, I determined to know nothing among, among you except Christ and Him crucified. God does the drawing, God does the saving, the Spirit does the confirming, but we are called in, to be part of that in the proclaiming. We are called to go into the world to share that hope. Someone has to tell them of their need for Christ, and that's our part. That's a difficult part. And Paul said that for him, he was eager to be doing that part. But we often treat that eagerness or that determination that we read here of Paul and even as a Peter, that they are exceptions, that they're only doing it because they were specifically chosen and gifted by God to do it. Now they were, but that doesn't mean that's their role alone. Many say it's not normal for Christians to have this kind of passion for the lost. Those kinds of people, they take their religion too seriously. And there are those who are called to, to be serious about Christianity, and, but some are like me, and I'm not supposed to do that. It's for the pastors, it's for the elders. But then there's normal Christians. And we watch and we encourage. We may even tithe, but that's not our calling. But it is, just like Paul, just like Peter. Acts 2, 43. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon. And... Listen to the account of those who received salvation. Verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And those who had believed together had all things in common. And they began selling their property, their possessions, and were sharing them all, as anyone might have, have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They received salvation with zeal. And what did they do? 
they immediately began to share the hope that they had received. They received and they shared. Now we looked this morning with Shanta's teaching on this, we have to be careful not to say, this is prescriptive. Because of this account in Acts, this is what we are to do. No, it's, it's, what it does show you though is, in every case in the New Testament, when somebody was transferred from the dark to light, from condemnation to salvation, they immediately had zeal to share. Look at the account of Saul in Acts 9.17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Verse 20, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. So very specifically, who Christ was. And all throughout the Bible we read, when people were saved, they were compelled to share. Their zeal and their joy and their salvation brings about an obligation to share that great news. A genuine believer should have that desire, and a true believer should be eager to tell others. Although we aren't, we know we should be eager. And at one time, maybe you were. But truthfully, we don't always feel this way. Why? Well, Paul answers that question. And I don't think we may like the answer, but he does answer it in verse 16. He tells us why he is a believer and who is eager, yet there are many who are not. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul wasn't worried about the consequences of his preaching. He wasn't worried about the rejection of his neighbors. Or he wasn't worried about imprisonment or the beatings that were to come. Now, we may feel we're not ashamed of the gospel, but how many times can we recount where we let an opportunity go? I'm guilty of it. There are many times where I've missed opportunities to share the gospel. And I'm not referring to the coordinated outreaches on the Saturdays, our missions month. Those are, those are great times to practice it. And in a group, there's even uh, more camaraderie. We, we feel encouraged because we can learn from each other. But I'm talking about those times where they present themselves and we turn. I'm busy. I'm in a hurry. I don't have time to do this. Uh, we seek comfort rather than confrontation. And maybe you've done the same. Maybe you're afraid of the rejection that will certainly come. Maybe you'll lose a friend or a family member because of it. But Paul here is implying that those who aren't eager are avoiding it because of the shame. He's not afraid. He's not ashamed. And if one is, they won't. We might want, not want to hear this, but it's likely true. If we can, one, on the one hand, confess our salvation is precious, and the most important thing to us. And on the other hand, say, I don't feel compelled to share it. There's a hypocrisy there. And what brings about the hypocrisy is the fear of man. It's sin that keeps us from being faithful. And we see this with Peter as well. Peter, the apostle. Both of them, apostles. Peter here, he's handpicked by Christ. Saved by the proclamation from Christ directly to him. This perfect God-man. Christ directly brought and gave salvation to Peter. And a believer who, 
who gave up everything. Peter gave up everything to follow him. And here's his account of shame in Matthew 26, 69. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. And we had gone out to the gateway. Another servant girl saw him and said, Those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know that man. A little later, the bystanders came up to him and said, Peter, or said to Peter, Surely you too are of them. For even that way, the way you talk gives you away. And then he began to curse and answer, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before, quote, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Christ had told Peter that he would deny him as his own, that he would be denied as one of Christ. And this would have been very fresh in the mind of Peter as he's encountered these girls and, and, and the crowd. And yet he rejected him. He rejected Christ at the very first opportunity to do it. A man who was personally called by Christ, followed Christ daily, sat under the ministry of the Lord himself, he was ashamed to profess him, to know him, to be aligned with him. Now I think we can relate to that kind of fear because it's a fear of death. He's afraid for his life, but sometimes we avoid speaking about Christ because of something a lot more trivial, shame or fear of losing friendships. Yes, we find it very easy to talk of Christ in the church, right? In the familiarity and the comfort and the oneness that we have in the, the walls here. But outside in the world, we fe- we're fearful. We may not deny knowing Jesus, but we are silent about it when we speak to others. We love to talk about Christ here, but not outside. We love to talk to others about things that we are not ashamed of. Um, We like to talk to people about our families, our work, our toys, our homes, whatever things that we are interested in that doesn't bring us shame, things that maybe even we're proud of, We can't stop talking about those things. But we're not eager about Christ because it brings shame. But if you are saved and have this timidity, this fear, this shame, there is encouragement that Paul gives us in the next verse. We can overcome our fear and shame when we realize it's not us that is in the center of this. We are not important in this. It's God's Word that saves. It's His Word that is powerful. We are not. Preaching is the power of God. In Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, sorry, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Not only does Paul tell us that he is not ashamed of the gospel, he tells us why we can't afford to be ashamed of the gospel. We're denying its power. In churches today, many have come up with more innovative or better, more rounded, more culturally relevant ways to talk about 
churchianity. And churches have removed these pointy, sharp edges of the gospel so that people feel more welcome, maybe less offended and more affirmed. And these man-word, people-pleasing methods may draw people in the church. We may fill seats, but this is not the power of salvation. There is one thing that demonstrates God's power unto salvation, and that is His Word. John 12, 50, I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. In Acts 17, 11, now these Jews were more noble. We're talking about the Bereans. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if the things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed. Why did they believe? Because they were in the Word. The power of the Word never returns void. When people are confronted with the power and the truth of God's Word, they have to respond. There's one of two things. Rejection, which brings condemnation, or they will submit, which brings salvation. They don't remain unmoved. And because the proclamation of God's Word is true Word, it, it demands a response, you'll get one. It's a living word that gives life or condemns. And that is the power of the gospel. It looks right into the heart. And that means the hearer needs to deal with it. When a visitor comes to this church and is exposed to the gospel of Christ and, and Christ crucified, not the, not the happy, clappy Christ of, of churchianity, but Christ crucified, there's no room for feeling good about yourself. Because they understand their sin. They understand the cost at Calvary. So there's nothing to feel happy about in and of themselves. And yes, many, many churches do preach Christ, right? They preach the love of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the wisdom, the charity. But they don't preach Him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1, Paul says this to the church, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superior, superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. What did he do? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's distilled it to the one main thing, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And we need to heed this counsel. We should avoid the philosophical debates, the clever apologetics, which are good because it helps us to systematically think about the gospel. But it is not our argument. Our wisdom is not the thing that wins. We need to keep the main thing main. It, it, and that, I just want to clarify that because I do find myself sometimes, sometimes being in a discussion which does turn into the whole realm of things. Philosophy and anthropology and history. Those things come into conversations. So we're not to be ignorant um, for the sake of Christ, but we are called to be fools. And what does that mean? To stop learning? To not think wisely? No, to be fools for Christ means that we are His, and you cannot know His salvation except by submitting to Him. We cannot save ourselves. We are completely and utterly dependent on Him. Um, and our arguments, our human wisdom cannot save or help. Christ crucified alone is what saves. And here's what Paul preached, because he knew that it was the power. So the gospel message is clear. You, 
and I are sinners. And because of your sin and mine, we fall short of the glory of God. And our sin warrants judgment. And that judgment is death. And in this death, you will spend eternity separated from God. But because God wanted to glorify Himself and to demonstrate His glory in His Son, He sent His Son to die in your place. It is your sin that put Christ on the cross. And if you want eternal life, you need to confess that sin. You need to turn from your sin. You need to take up your cross and follow Him. And those who do this are the ones that have eternal life with Christ. And Paul knew this well. Peter knew this well. You know, Peter, even after rejecting, what did he do? He wept. He knew immediately. He was deeply grieved by what he had done. And after he had wept, what did he do? He repented. He repented of his fear, of his shame, of his rejection. And now look at his preaching in Acts 2.14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And then he went on and he preached the, the sermon at Pentecost. But listen to the response to the hearers. Now again, this is descriptive. So I'm not saying, church, we do this, we're going to have 3,000 converts. No, this is describing what happened. But what is happening? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And Peter said, and the rest of the apostles said, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And on that day were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Descriptive. But one thing that is prescriptive is what? Preach the gospel. When you do that, there will be a response of condemnation or salvation. There was no cleverness of speech or wisdom of man, just the clarity and the power of the gospel and the conviction that they are mentioning. They were, they were uh, convicted to the heart. And we are called to proclaim the gospel. Let God do the work to the hearer. All right. Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? We see it in verse 17, right? Paul explains it. This is the only way they are saved. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It's the righteousness of God. And this makes God the just and the justifier. He can't justify you unless He Himself is perfectly just. The phrase righteousness of God is better translated righteousness from God. Both can be used, but the from denotes the source because it is by faith that we receive from God His righteousness, right? It's Christ's substitutional death on our part that we are receiving. And the phrase of God means that it is His righteousness that He provides on the basis of our response of faith, of the gospel, which also is a gift of the Lord. But that's another sermon. Even our faith is a gift of 
from God to respond to it. He lifts the veil so that we can hear and know. So it's always been the way that God brings salvation through righteousness, right? The, the, uh, he justifies the unrighteousness through faith, always through faith. And here Paul is reminding the Romans that it is by faith in Christ that you are declared righteous. So for the believer, this is, should be encouragement. This should be freeing and liberating that the gospel of Christ crucified is the only tool that we need and the only tool that we carry on our belt. Because we are now sharing the righteousness of God to those who are perishing. So don't amend it. Don't add to it. Don't be ashamed of it. Because it is the power unto salvation. We are called to proclaim the only thing that can truly set men free. And that's why it's urgent. Obedience is urgent. Paul now shows us why it's critical that our obedience in evangelizing is, is critical in verse 18 and 19. And I will finish on time. I will quickly go over these two verses. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. So those who do not know the Lord are perishing. And Paul explains that God's wrath is already poured out to the unrighteousness, those who reject Him. They're already condemned. The consequences of God's wrath on the unbelieving world is greater than we can fathom, and it's an ongoing, ever-present thing. And that should motivate us to reveal the righteousness that they are saved through in Him. Um, the, the present tense term here in verse 18 is, is revealed, meaning God's, God's wrath is already taking place. Um, and it can be also translated as continually revealed, either through the direct and I would say natural consequences of, of sin and justice, or indirectly through God handling an entire uh, people or an entire nation, handing them entirely over to the sin. So God's condemnation in the natural consequences of the fallen nature of man, it is because of their suppression of the truth. They ignore His revelation and they pervert His holiness and His glory. But Paul is describing more than just the natural consequences of this kind of rebellion. He's describing the consequences of God removing the restraining spirit. He hands them over to their lusts. Let's look quickly what happens in verse 24 when he does this. When God abandons the people, he abandons the unrighteousness. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. It's my time. And dishonoring their, of their bodies and among themselves. So God's allowing them to live in their sin. He gives them up or gives them over to it, even more so. Um, and this is their punishment, their sentence, that they will live in this perpetual sin and they'll increase in it. They'll love it even more and they'll devote themselves to it even more because they're devoted to destruction and they continue to reject God. Verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And verse 29 and 28. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, and it goes on. God's wrath here is not an active outpouring of his judgment. It's simply a removal of restraint that allows the sinner to reap what they sow. They're they're reaping the wages of their sin and rebellion. It's a man living out the natural result of their fallen state. And those who don't know Christ as their Savior are already under God's wrath. And when God removes that restraining spirit, it just simply allows them to descend even more into what they are, sinners. He hands them over and they destroy themselves. That's our battlefield. That's our mission. This is who we once were. But God, rich in His mercy, He saved us. Not so that we can live contently, but so that we can live under this obligation of debt to Him. There's a world out there that's suffering under the wrath of God as we speak. But there's a gospel that has a power to change that. And it's by our obedience that we play our part. Let us be under the obligation to be that part. Charles Spurgeon has this to say, and it's the last thing I'll say. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish in our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, these are heavy truths. And Lord, as we look at Paul's obligation to the Romans, to the Greek, to the barbarian, to all who are perishing, Lord, that you have handed people over um, to their lusts, to their passions. And Lord, we are living in, living in a fallen world. And Lord, we are indeed saved from that. And Lord, we just pray for conviction of heart. Uh, Lord, for uh, a zeal to be faithful to what you have commanded us to do. But may that be also a natural response out of joy that you've placed in our own hearts and our own minds. We thank you for the faithfulness of your saints in this body. We thank you, Lord, for the example of many who, who uh, can help us grow in this way. And Lord, we thank you most of all for your mercy and grace in our lives, that we can live another day to share this saving truth to others. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.